Well, since <clears throat> since Carl's not here, I guess I have to hand out my own handout. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Notice the, uh, the the little whine I put at the end of that statement. Yeah, just make everyone feel guilty. Um, this gives us a chance to have uh, everyone to have the same text in front of them with Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. I think I said it two different times to Lisa during the week. This particular passage is one that teaches itself. All you really have to do is read it and it kind of explains itself. However, it's important for us to go into some of the areas within this text and try to discern what God is trying to say to us today. I do think it would be helpful if we all read it out loud together so we have one time through the text itself and then we can come back to the top. So it's a little bit of a longer passage but I think it's important that we are literally on the same page together. So let's read together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Nothing like reading this morning's newspaper. Isn't that extraordinary? You realize that this was written in 60, about 60 AD? It's just an, an extraordinary litany of the definition of sinfulness and sinful behavior. But it starts with the phrase, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now, last week, we were in verses 16 and 17, where it says the righteousness of God is revealed. So you have the righteousness of God is revealed, and the very next sentence he says the wrath of God is revealed. But what is the wrath of God? Now, the problem 
in our English is the word wrath. We usually only use the word wrath as a synonym for anger. So we would say, oh, the anger of God. Well, no. Well, yes, but no. That isn't, that's a very simplistic definition, but it's the challenge of English. You see, in Greek, there are two different words for wrath. One is thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S, and the other is orga, O-R-G-E. This is the word orga. The word thumos is like a flash wildfire through a bale of straw. It's hot, it's intense, it's um, a snap. In one moment everything's fine, and the next moment it's a complete conflagration. Uh, Of course, we're in the wildfire season in Arizona, so Flagstaff is being threatened by wildfires. It starts and it just takes off. That's anger, not wrath. Anger in this case, or wrath in this case, and this is used ten times in the book of Romans, is to grow ripe, to swell right before the explosion. So it's like something is growing and building and building and building. And if you ever read the Old Testament, God's patience with his people is extraordinary. He gives them the opportunity. Here's all the things you should be doing. And they do them for a while and then they stop and they do all the bad things and then God has to bring judgment. Think of the book of Judges, how many cycles there are. Over and over and over again. And it's like, God was so patient with his people, he's still patient with us today. However, you will have people in your workplace, in your school, in your life, who will say, well, I can't believe in a God who would condemn people to eternal damnation. I cannot believe in a God who would do that. Okay, do you believe in justice in any form? Well, of course. Okay. So the guy who shot up the supermarket the other day, should he be judged? Well, of course, he did a bad thing. Who says? Who says he did a bad thing? Well, the law did. Oh, so the law is the judge? But what if we change the law? What if what was right yesterday is wrong today? Or what if what something was wrong yesterday is right today according to man's law? Who determines what's right and wrong? If man does, we're going to have to check the COVID rules before we do something because it's going to change tomorrow. We're, we're getting a little bit of a mixed message in our society of what is right and wrong, aren't we? I mean, you've got people, uh, it's just in this morning's paper, there's a column where the uh, guy is saying, uh, the writer is saying, look, the idea of trying to pass a law that you can't have um, drag queen days in elementary schools is wrong, doesn't understand Milton Burrow dressing up in drag, it doesn't understand Flip Wilson dressing up in drag, and it's just funny. I'm going, yeah, those are comedians doing something outrageous for a joke. Those that are in these schools now are serious. They're dead serious, saying this is a valid lifestyle and we will teach you as as a, a new way of living. Who determines the rules? Especially when society is saying, ah, just relax. It's innocent. No, it's not innocent. So at what point does wrath come in? Where is that line? 
here's how one way to look at it. God's wrath, and I'm quoting John MacArthur and another Puritan. Um, that's not to say John MacArthur's a Puritan. That's it. But John MacArthur's also, anyway, I'm quoting two different people in this passage. God's wrath is not like human anger, which is always tainted by sin. God's wrath is always and completely righteous. He never loses his temper. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said, Is God so infinitely holy? Then see how unlike to God sin is. No wonder, therefore, that God hates sin, being so unlike him, so contrary to him, <clears throat> that it strikes at his holiness. I wrote in my notes that holiness cannot abide unholiness. It's just so antithetical. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I'm certain that to preach the wrath of God with a hard heart, a cold lip, and a tearless eye, and an unfeeling spirit is to harden men, not benefit them. The conscious conscience of man when he is really quickened and awakened to the Holy Spirit speaks the truth. It rings the great alarm bell. <coughs> and if he turns over in his bed, that great alarm bell rings out again and again, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. And there is no trouble like genuine conviction of sin. Racks, scorpions, death, those are troubles that could be laughed at when compared to the weight of guilt pressing on the conscience, the sight of an angry God, and the fear of the wrath to come. Most of us would rather hear about love and grace, and I would rather teach you about grace. To speak of the wrath of God makes us appear narrow-minded, judgmental, and <gasps> fundamentalist. Oh, what a terrible thing. Because God's wrath is difficult to comprehend. In some ways, it's also a doctrine that's easy to overlook. The thought that nice people we know might someday go to eternal hell is overwhelming and disheartening, and we'd rather not think about it. So we tend not to teach about it. It's uncomfortable. We're in a civilized society. So you can talk about sin. Well, unfortunately, you really can't talk about sin in our society now because they don't know what that word means, or they've redefined it. I still remember working construction a gazillion billion years ago. I love how all my anecdotes are historical fiction now. Um, but there was this one fellow I was working with on, on the construction crew who had a big scar in the middle of his chest. And you know, he was shirtless, and so I asked him, so what's that? Oh, I shot myself. On purpose? And he goes, no, 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 I was, my girlfriend's father was on the way over, so I was cleaning my gun and it went off. Okay. Um, found out this fellow was the son of a preacher. Had left the faith, wanted nothing to do with it. And because he knew I was a Bible major in college, he would always sing going to hell and proud of it while working with me. He is thumbing his nose at God. He is saying, I want nothing to do with it. And I'm proud of it. He knows the truth, but chooses to dispense with it. So you have this idea then, well, and another fellow said to me, well, it doesn't really matter as long as you're not hurting anybody. You can do whatever you want. That philosophy is prevalent. Well, you know, 
two people, if they love each other, it doesn't matter what their gender is, as long as they're not hurting anyone else. Anyway. So there's those who say that the idea of wrath is a blot on the character of God. Well, that means there's a shallow understanding of what righteousness is. If you don't understand the character of God and you're only focusing on one tiny little sliver of the vastness of who God is, you're not looking beyond the hiccup in your mind. And another said, well, simply the idea that if we're condemned for sin, it's not fair. Because we don't deserve it. Okay. That goes into a much larger conversation, a philosophical conversation on what is right, what is wrong, who determines right and wrong, etc., etc., etc. But isn't it interesting that Paul answers that question in verses 19 and 20? For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes namely his eternal power and his divine nature. In other words, the things we cannot see have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. Now there's a, it's actually an old book now, Um, Don Richardson wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Are you familiar with this book at all, anybody? Anyone in the mission field probably has read it. Don Richardson investigated cultures, basically considered pagan cultures, in third world nations, in third world cultures, and in history. And he would say, but look at this. They had a concept of who God was. And no missionary had ever been there to tell them about it. How did they figure it out? In the creation around them. Eternity was placed in their hearts by God, they recognized that there was something greater than themselves. He even goes back into the Mayan culture, uh, the ones who built Machu Picchu, and looking into the the writings and the, the culture there, and he was able to find certain segments that had this concept of God as we would define God without having anyone teach them that. They saw it in nature. This is God's answer to the question, well, what about the innocent native in New Guinea who's never heard? Well, they may not have heard the gospel message out of Romans, but it's been painted on the sky. So here's a couple little things I came across. These are just fun little trivia bits. So the distance from the Earth to the Sun is 93 million miles. Exactly the amount of distance needed so we don't either freeze to death or burn up. Either way, it would be the opposite effect if we were any closer or any farther away. The 23 and a half degree tilt of the Earth on its axis ensures seasonal changes. Without it, the majority of the world would be desert. Worse than the one we live in now. Think um, Yuma all over the world. (laughs) Sorry for those of you from Yuma. Um, The balance of oxygen, 21%, and nitrogen, 78%, in the air we breathe is perfect for sustaining life. The ozone layer in the atmosphere prevents us from being destroyed by the ultraviolet rays that the sun bombards us with. If that weren't there, life would not exist on planet Earth. The human heart, the average human heart, pumps 1,000 gallons a day. Just think about that for a second. 55 million gallons in a lifetime. That would fill 13 super tankers. And it never sleeps 
It never stops until the end of life. And it beats 2.5 billion times in the average lifetime. Lungs contain 1,000 miles of capillaries. And the process of exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide is so complicated that Dr. John Medina, a genetic engineer at the University of Washington said, it's more difficult to exchange O2 for CO2 than for a man shot out of a cannon to carve the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin as he passed by. <laughs> DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 meters, so that's about this much, of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. And a nucleus is six microns long. So you have that into that. They say it's like putting 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. <laughs> and you can't just stuff it in. It has to be folded in. You fold it one way and the skin, the cell becomes a skin cell. You fold it another way and it becomes a liver cell. To write out the information on one cell would take 300 volumes and each volume is 500 pages thick. The human body contains enough DNA that if it was stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. And last, the body uses energy very efficiently. If an average adult rides a bike for one hour at 10 miles an hour, it uses the amount of energy contained in three ounces of carbohydrate. If a car were this efficient with its gasoline, it would get 900 miles a gallon. I would buy that car. <laughs> and of course we have Mr. Tesla in the back and he's going, whoa, but somebody has to create the electricity, <laughs> usually with a fossil fuel. <laughs> anyway. John Calvin wrote, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see God. Upon his individual works, he has engraved unmistakable marks of glory. This skillful ordering of the universe is for us a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible. What can be known about God is plain. God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But we have suppressed that truth. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, when I was reading this with you, I was reading out of my Bible and the ESV changed the translation. In my Bible, it reads reptiles. In the new editions of the ESV, it says creeping things. Why? I don't know. To me, reptiles are creepy. So creepy things and creepy reptiles, it's the same wording, but they actually improved the translation. Uh, so <coughs> there are many times where we're reading in, our, in church, and I'm reading out of my Bible, and whoever's reading the passage from the front We'll read a word, and that's not in my Bible. And I'll pull it out of the pew in front of me, and it's a different word. So translations do change slightly. Not in a massively meaningful way, but that's why I said a different word than you did when you were reading it. Anyway. So they knew God, and you have... I, I go back to Jeremiah, and it makes you wonder if Paul was thinking of Jeremiah when he wrote this passage. Because Jeremiah chapter 10, he writes this. 
Jeremiah writes, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And when he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And then Jeremiah writes, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. His images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. and the time of their punishment, they will perish. And here he's talking about them exchanging the truth of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. The idea of idol worship. Just thought that was an interesting possible connection. And by the way, the word fools there in verse 22, it is the Greek word moros, M-O-R-O-S, with the long O for the first letter, which is where we get our word moron. And it says, they are without excuse, up in verse 20. I mean, how often do you... Uh, there, was, there was one study that was done. They went into employees of a large, multiple large corporations and asked management, when work is not done, what is the excuse that is given by the worker? Uh, usually it's, wasn't my fault. Or it was someone else didn't do their job. Or no one told me to do it this way. In other words, it's never their fault. Well, there was a NFL field goal kicker who was famous for this. His name was Raphael Septien, who kicked for the Houston Oilers. And in one game, he missed four out of five field goals. His first excuse, the grass was too tall. Problem is, it's artificial turf. <laughs> that one didn't go over real well. Another one, he said it was the 30-second shot distracted me. That's uh, 30-second shot clock or the mm -hmm. timer. Another one, he said his helmet was too tight and it squeezed his brain so he couldn't think. <laughs> and the last one, he said to his holder, no wonder, you placed the ball upside down. <laughs> now, if you think about a football, there is no top or bottom. I'm sorry, you can't. That's, I mean, we will come up with an excuse of any sort just to get out of the responsibility that it's really our decision. And it is interesting, and uh, this, this is almost, you know, letting today's news be too easy of fodder for a class like this, but someone does something incredibly evil, and the first thing they, add, they first say is, well, he must have had a mental illness as if that makes it okay. Or then they'll say, well, um, he, he got angry, or it was a domestic dispute. And so they try to fix everything and never lay the blame on the individual who perpetrated it. It's everyone else's excuse. It's society's excuse. It's the laws weren't strong enough. And you wanna go, Let's back up somewhere. In somewhere, in some way, that person made a choice. And I know there's all sorts of variations on this, and we could have this conversation and all the disclaimers related to it. But here, in talking about sin, it's very clear there is no excuse. So while you have in front of you verses 24 to 32, I did this years ago when I taught this class. I found it in my notes. I've forgotten I had done this. So you follow along while I read verses 24 to 32 
in the way it should have been written. No, no, no. This is, this is the way it should be written as a manual for the Christian life. So you can follow along and you'll see right away what I've done. Therefore, God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator who is blessed forever rather than the creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward for their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful, and they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are processors of life. They do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Versus what we read here. Now, what we read here, and I, I want to give a caution when we read this passage. It's very easy to read this passage and point fingers. See, that group over there, that man over there, and I was doing a little bit of it earlier, using contemporary examples. But when you get down to it and you start reading this litany of non-godly activity, you start realizing he's talking to you and he's talking to me. When he says covetousness, well, I've done that. Oh, I've been envious. Oh, wait, I've passed on information like a gossip. Um, I did disobey my parents at least once in my life. <laughs> I mean, think about that. We will point to this passage, especially verses 26 and 27, uh, relating to homosexuality, we will focus on that and realize that here he's saying all sin separates us from God. For all have sinned and come fallen short of the glory of God. That's over in chapter 3. We have to remember that. At the same time, we can also do the application to contemporary society. It was really interesting. One of the first sermons I listened to when I was starting my preliminary study for this was a John MacArthur sermon. I'm listening to it. And I'm like, Boy, all of his illustrations are really old. I mean, he was pulling out stats and everything else. And I looked, he gave that sermon in 1977. The principles that he was applying, biblical, last forever. I mean, they are applicable today as they were back then. But uh, he was talking about abortion, homosexuality, materialism, technology. This was before Mr. Google was invented. I mean, there wasn't such a thing as cell phones. And he was talking about the dangers of technology. And I just thought, holy smoke. 45 years ago is the same problems we're dealing with today. They're much more evident and much more prevalent, but they're not a lot different. Sin is sin, no matter when it happens. So here's a question for you. Do you remember where Paul was when he wrote this? What city was he in? He wasn't in Rome. He was writing to Rome from 
Corinth. And what was up at the top of the hill in Corinth? It was the temple of prostitutes as part of their worship. What he's writing about, he just looked outside his window. People walk by and go, oh, Charlie, let's write that down. Hater of God. Oh, there goes Sally. Oh, let's see. She's the insolent one. I mean, she, he could just sit there and think about all the culture around him as applicable, applicable for all of time and all of history. It wasn't just that Rome was full of these people. Well, of course it was. But so was Corinth. So was Thessalonica. So were the people in the Galatia region. So was you know, Colossians and Ephesians. I mean, we started going around this, realizing Paul's writing was very consistent on this issue. All the time. He didn't just pick and point. He would try to create principles that we then today, 2,000 years later, go, oh wow, that looks like today's newspaper. Depending on how you count these various vices that are listed, um, uh, you know, I, I, I made a stab at it. Uh, 21 of them, depending on how you count them. Four represent all of wickedness. Four represent hatred of a fellow man. Seven of them are central sins that all have pride at the center. And four of them are disobedience as a character trait. So if you look at it, you can kind of see some are very broad, some are specific to a, the, you know, your fellow man, others are very pride-centered. You can actually look you know, insolent, haughty, boastful, and then others about disobedience. So you have God gave them over three times. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. You can circle it. God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up, or God gave them over, depending on your, your translation. That's the Greek word paradidomi, to give alongside. In other words, to literally present to someone else or to some other authority. At this point, rather than having God came down and obliterated them, he simply said, he just said, okay, that's what you want to do? Have at it. And you will reap the consequences. Rather than doing the Noah thing, come there and wipe out the world. Now, there are times where you almost wish we could have a reset button. Um, it's so easy to reboot your computer or your phone, you just turn it off and reboot it. Well. We kind of wish God would reboot some of this stuff. But you know what? Very short order, we'd be right back where we are again. Because man is sinful. It's interesting to note, those who say that Jesus never talked this way have not read the Gospels. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said... From within, out of the heart of men comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So there are many who will say, well, Jesus never condemned behavior. He was always so gracious and loving, and when he, def you know, when he attacked, he only attacked the religious people. They didn't read this passage. This passage is very clear that out of man comes evil. Paul echoes that. Out of men comes evil. There's just no way around it. Pastor Ray Pritchard has interesting thoughts on this. He says, the Living Bible has a striking translation where he said, 
where it says, they were fully aware of God's death penalty for these crimes, yet they went right ahead and did them anyway. And that, my friends, is the bottom when evil is publicly celebrated. At this point, you have the total reversal of, of values in a society. And I don't think it's unfair to say that we have essentially reached that point here. The wrongdoers have taken control of two key areas of modern society, education and media. And they have legal status for their inquiry. And they defy all attempts at wresting control from them. When a major organization argues that homosexuality is normal, and then a public figure is, cut, is chastised for speaking out against it, and when the churches are ordain, or, ordaining homosexuals and those who object are mercilessly vilified, when those things are true, what you have is a loss of public morality, and no one knows the difference between right and wrong, because the values of society has been turned upside down. Whenever men turn away from God, terrible things begin to happen in society. Long-held standards disappear. Things once considered incredible are now commonplace, and evil no longer seems evil. The basic distinction between male and female is obliterated, and no one knows the difference between right and wrong. And in such an atmosphere, homosexuality is first tolerated, then accepted, then praised, and then enshrined. I would say we're at that point right now. This is from last week. This is a news press release comment for a minister who claims that the Bible must give way to same-sex marriage. This minister claims the Bible must yield because what society today has learned through psychology, science, is that we have to read the scripture in new light and the Bible has to be reinterpreted. And here he then says, I'm not suggesting we throw away the scriptures and just conform to anything. Okay. <laughs> People's understandings of human sexuality has developed, it's evolved. We've grown better and we know more and we need to read the scripture in that light. And this is a minister in the Church of Scotland. And this is dated June 11th, 2022. Well, I found an article that I printed out and I need my handout guy. <laughs> need to have a reason for living. All right. <laughs> I found this article um, actually last April. I was actually thinking about this passage last April. And it's an article from crosswalk.com on what the Bible really says about homosexuality. It's very long. It's just for your reading um, interest later. He goes through the various major passages. You may have read many of these before. Yeah, you may have read many of these passages before and it may be basic but it's good to have it all in one place for research purposes or for your own understanding, especially when society is hammering us, is that if you hold to this position, you are wrong. And eventually you will be declared as uh, not a uh, contributor to society. And be hate speech. It is considered hate speech in many circles. Um, it was interesting, this happened in China just last week. Now it has nothing to do with homosexuality, but it had to do with a protest over some banking laws. And people were going to be traveling to this city to protest, but the travel passports for these people was on their phones. Their COVID passports were on their phones. And if they had planned a trip to that town 
their passport turned from green to red, just like that, and they were not allowed to travel. They were also not allowed to withdraw their money from that bank. The government controlled that and with a flip of a switch changed their status in society as whether or not they were good contributors to society. Now that's banking and that's protest. Okay, fine. But you know where I'm going with that. Uh, I know of one uh, teacher uh, who, who teaches and preaches online regularly and does video, YouTube videos and podcasts and everything else. And he actually stood in front of one of his charts and he said, there will be one day where I will be put in jail for what I'm about to say. And he dove into the issues of homosexuality. And he goes, I know. It, the society may change and it will be declared hate speech and I will be declared persona non grata and they will come for me. And we have to decide now, as people, what we will stand for. Now, ain't that a joyful thing to talk about? Well, that's what, you know, when Tom was in France, he and Lucy talked to all of their kids saying, I'm preaching the word teaching and this might be the result. And they yep. were all, and just because they already knew of the people in Canada, the pastors in Canada who've been in prison. But it's, it's, I mean, we all know the same thing. It opened the door to, to destroying our, the innocence. I just think of, is it in Psalms? It talks about the, um, something about the innocence of children and the damage of the glory of God in them. And, um, well, we see it everywhere. You know, it depends if you're what state you're in, but actually it doesn't always depend. But we we have kids in you know Illinois and grandson there and it's it's laws. And when there's no Christian schools in those areas and the private schools are buckling under, you Send your child to a place where the whole image of God is destroyed because God created male and female. And when society destroys the image of God, we are destroyed. God's wrath. And I know I'm seeing everything. Everybody already knows, like, yeah, we hear this all the time. But it's to swallow up the children along with it and to see our society at a point where that's the best thing for them. It's yeah. It's just vile. It's so vile. But it's because of that passage you're talking about now with these sheep are on these sheep. That opened up so many doors. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, which is exactly what Lisa is saying. We're seeing this. We struggle with this. We try to articulate it. We try to articulate it with love. We try to come back with some sort of grace. And yet, when you make a stance in particular areas, and here's one of the biggest challenges I think we, we are faced in our Christian culture, is when you remove the Bible as the authority, then the conversation's over. Because then who is the authority? What is the authority upon which these ideas are based? And if they say, well, it's culture, but culture changes. It just constantly is an, an, an adapting thing. There has to be some sort of absolute against which right and wrong is judged and based. Years ago, I was involved with a book, I was an editor of a book called Legislating Morality. And the question was, can it can morality be legislated? And the second question is, should it be legislated? It was a very interesting discussion on these kinds of philosophical issues that have practical implications. And, and what was the conclusion of the book? 
They were very deft at not concluding. <laughs> they were educators trying to say, um, you really can't legislate morality because you can't change the heart of men. But, right, but the other view is that every law that is made has a basis in morality of what Correct. is right and wrong. Correct. So every law is some level of morality. The fact that people may violate it because they have hard hearts, okay, well that's their problem, but the law is the law right. that is legislated. And unfortunately the challenge is the law keeps moving sure. and shifting. And that's where we, we, we it's really difficult, uh, especially in American culture. Yeah. Because we have a, a particular, uh, let's just say, for lack of a better term, respect for the law. Not every culture has that. Well, well <laughs> I understand your point, but you could go to Thailand and there's a very different understanding of law and because of who sets it. So, I mean, it, it changes from culture to culture. And the consequences of it. Am I right? Consequences in Thailand of, of breaking laws can be pretty harsh. Sure. Just, on, even the more simplistic. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they tend to be uh, bigger swings in Thailand where if it's a law having to do something with the king or some high authority, then there's no uh, grace. There's no fudge factor. You violate that, you're kicked out of the country. You're in the jail. doesn't matter. But then they have other laws, highway laws, traffic laws, that no one follows. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. there's a big swing depending on who's being violated, who's the law for. Sometimes there's no laws and it, it doesn't matter, and then other times it's, it's really strict. I, I, you actually reminded me of a picture years ago, many, again, another historical fiction story, uh, being in the Philippines, being at a stoplight, six lanes, and everybody in the front row turned left. <laughs> All six of them. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> and they're all blank, you know, blaring their horns. Get out of the way! It was like, holy smoke! Is no nobody paying attention to the rules around here? And, well, now, that is that is the rule. Now Thailand is different because of its um, it, it's very respectful, and they don't want to upset people. They call krenjai. You just try to maintain, uh, you know, everything's okay. And they do it in their driving. You never hear horns in Thailand. <laughs> it is Bizarre. amazing. So you, your example right there, take a left. The guy all the way in the right of lane, let's say, he wants to take the left. But he's way out. He just starts going there, and all these cars slow down. And he's cut in front of all these cars, and he makes his way, and he takes his left-hand turn. He still does it. He does it, and no one beeps a horn. <laughs> It is just amazing. I, I just, every time I'm just like amazed. It's like, and we just because no one wants to, you know, bother offend, yeah, offend. offend anyone else. So, so you and you don't take offense. So, you know, and usually the guy that's doing that is usually an older guy. Like older people <laughs> can get away with anything. They just they, they bike their bicycles everywhere and they'll just cut in front of all this traffic and all these cars will slow down and he just makes his way across. Oh my. Uh, yeah, but it's an interesting cultural thing. So here's an interesting little bit of uh, trivia, if I can find my note here. Uh, get to the right one. Here it is. So you think about, again, let's go back to Paul, when he's writing and where he's writing. Who is the emperor? At, the, at this time in, in, in history. Nero. Nero is now the emperor. Okay. Uh, Nero's father died when he was three and Emperor Caligula confiscated the family wealth. So Nero and his mother were quite poor for some time. But things changed dr dramatically when his mom, Agrippina, married her uncle, the Emperor Claudius. 
So Claudia, Caligula was one emperor, then came Claudius. She married the emperor, her uncle. That marriage was the means of Nero's rise to power. Agrippina managed to get Nero adopted, not as the son of Claudius, not only as the son of Claudius, but as heir to the throne over Claudius's sons. So with the line of succession taken care of, Agrippina took the final step and in 54 AD murdered her husband with poison mushrooms so that her son could become emperor. Happy Mother's Day. Anyway, uh, wow, happy Father's Day, exactly. Nero became the emperor of the mighty empire at the age of 17. She, his mom, was very influential at first, but as might to be expected from the example she set, he became gradually estranged with her, removed her from the palace a year later, and four years later had her murdered. So at the age of 22, he had his mom murdered, he's now emperor, and then he became increasingly brutal and depraved. Now some people say... What year was that approximately? 22 when he, when he had his mother... Uh, that would be 59. So the year before Paul wrote this letter. Okay. So that news would have traveled the empire. Oh, Nero's that kind of guy? Hmm. Now, people will say that, you know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned in 64 AD. Uh, the problem is there was no fiddles. <laughs> and most likely Nero didn't set the fire. It doesn't say he didn't order it to start set. But the fire started in the Circus Maximus because there was no Colosseum yet. Mm -hmm. Colosseum hadn't been built yet. But it started there and I think I mentioned this later, uh, is that six years later is when the Colosseum began to be built on the land that had been raised by the fire. So what Nero was doing was clearing land so he could build the city he wanted. <clears throat> but to get away with it, he blamed the Christians for doing it. And that began the uh, spectacles of the wild animals uh, tearing apart Christians in the Circus Maximus and he used humans as lamps in his gardens. That is a depraved mind. He could be, he never mentions the Emperor here, but he could have. <clears throat> Probably wouldn't have been the wisest thing to put in print and then send to Rome in a letter, but you imagine the people in Rome are going, oh yeah, we have, we have a guy like that who's in charge. So it's just a, more of a historical uh, background for you. I look at all of this and it's a depressing, gloomy passage. It's a hard passage to read. It makes us angry. It makes us frustrated with our own society, with this, the, uh, the ills of our society and the decline of our society. You realize we've been talking about the decline of, of, our, of our society forever? Tom Watson is a Puritan preaching in England about the decline of British society. You have all of these situations of sin has been prevalent in the life of men and women for all time. And there is no excuse. All we can do as, as Christians, as believers, is to be faithful, to have a stance of what is truth. That's what amen means, by the way. If you remember verse 25, it ends with the word amen. Truth. If we can stand that, we can somehow stem the tide in some way, some form, some fashion in our uh, in our reach, the reach we might have to make and build an opportunity for those who do not believe that there is an option for them in the kingdom 
because Christ died for those very sins. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time, for a chance to dive into some pretty dark places. We just thank you, Lord, that you care enough for us, you have enough grace and love for for each of us that you provided for our salvation in spite of our lack of holiness, in spite of our sin. That in spite of all of that, you just didn't wipe us out. You have given us the chance to have your image expressed in our lives and in the lives with whom we come in touch. In Jesus' name, amen.